0: up servants for our kids from amongst these in this room Um, I trust you for that pray you'd make that clear to us now pray now that you might serve us through this word of yours that we might have time to sit and think deeply about it and our own lives and you may your spirit be our guide in it all we ask this in Christ's name amen since about I think it's 1927 Time Magazine, every year, has picked a man of the year. Now, these days, it's a person of the year. They kept, even back in the 1930s, they were picking women. They finally figured out person of the year was probably a better way to do it. President Obama was uh, the man of the year in 2012. But over the years, um, they've picked a variety of people because it is the person, for better or for worse, has done the most to influence events that year, so... You've got people like Gandhi one year and then Hitler and Stalin. You've got folks like, yes, Bono has been up there one year as representing humanitarians. Um, The Ayatollah Khomeini, a handful of American presidents you've already seen, astronauts, the Pope, Mark Zuckerberg, and one year, you were the person of the year. I'm not kidding. 2006, they named you to be the person of the year. Now, they upped the ante one year in 1999, we're coming on a new century, so they named Albert Einstein to be the man of the century. There's a guy named um, Michael Hart who wrote a book called The 100, and they are the 100 most influential people, not of the year, not of the century, but all of history. And on his list are people like Freud and Darwin and Moses, and Luther, and Marx, and Bach, and Calvin. Jesus was third right after Muhammad and Isaac Newton. Um, so who would you pick? Who would you say is the greatest? Uh, it's, worth, it's worth just kind of reflecting and thinking about that. Um, what I want us to think about today is who would Jesus pick? Who would Jesus say is the greatest person whoever lived. And that's exactly the question that will get answered in Matthew chapter 11 as we look at the first or majority of that that chapter today starting in verse 1 when Jesus had diminished or excuse me had finished instructing his 12 disciples he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John this is John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ he sent word by his disciples and said to him to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, let me tip Jesus hand what he's going to say in just a couple of verses explicitly. John the Baptist is Jesus greatest man, okay? He's the man of the year. Jesus is going to say it explicitly. But it's interesting where we meet him. He's in prison. And he's doubting. He's not sure. He's no longer sure if Jesus is the one. Or if they should look for somebody else. This language of the one is essentially uh, asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ who's come to rescue us from our sins and our oppressors? John has doubts now, but there was a time when he was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. Back in John's gospel, um, the first chapter, right when Jesus is just launching his ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, and this is what he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now, after a year in prison, it can bring the doubt out in you. Because things were not going as planned. This is not what they thought the Messiah would do. Um, Dale Bruner says, Jesus is out in the sticks, healing sick, insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees are still control of popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religio-ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. What is more, John, who's the propagandist of the new order, is in prison, and Herod, the embodiment of the oppressive establishment, is still on the throne as in fact about to have John's head. He says, what kind of Messiah is this? That's what John is wondering. It's a very reasonable, very important question, and we often ask it out of our suffering. What kind of of rescuer is this? John gets Jesus' vote for man of the year, and yet here he doubts. And that's so troubling that some of the commentators have tried to say, no, John really wasn't doubting. It was his disciples. John just wanted them to go and get their doubts taken care of. But the Bible doesn't really say that. It leaves the question sourced in John, are you the one? Do you ever doubt? You ever wonder if this whole Christianity thing, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if you got it straight, if it's really right and true? I think, I think most of us do. Some of us doubt. It's just a moment, it's just a fleeting moment, we just wonder. And for others of us, it's a season of struggle. Could this, could this really is this, am I right? Is this true? When those times come, often two things are coinciding. They're the two things that were present in John's doubting. They are great suffering and Jesus is not measuring up to your expectations in your suffering. John was in prison. That wasn't the way it was supposed to go. Author Richard Exley writes, he says, I know, I know one minister who returned to his pulpit ten days after his son committed suicide. Under duress, he read his text that day. It was Romans, from Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He says, visibly struggling, the minister said, I cannot make my son's suicide fit into this passage. Doubt. You're not alone in your doubt. If you doubt, you're not alone. You're not the first believer, the only believer, to question it. John doubted. The man of the year doubted. Significantly, though, Jesus answered that doubt. And he gave to John what he would need to overcome his questions. In verse 4, Jesus answers John's disciples. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus directed John's disciples to two things, what they had seen and what they had heard, his works and his words. They said, Go back. This is the answer to John's doubts. What they had seen, what they have heard. And he's, he's pointing them really back to what we've been reading in Matthew, last five chapters or so. Okay. Chapters five through seven, the great sermon on the mount, Jesus' words. Chapters eight and nine, those ten miraculous stories, Jesus' works. Essentially he's saying, go back and look at that again. Okay? John, this is this is what tells you that I am the one. And he uses the language of the prophet Isaiah. John would have heard Isaiah in Jesus' answer because Isaiah in chapter 35 and elsewhere sounds similar. He says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened And the ears of the deaf unstopped, and in a number of places, Jesus is pulling together the language of Isaiah to assuage John's doubt and point him to his own works and his own words. It's a really good recipe for when you doubt the words and works of Jesus. In fact, one commentator says that seeing what Jesus does and hearing what Jesus says is the way and the only way that leads to faith. Another means by which we can make ourselves or others into believers simply does not exist. Go back. Okay? When you doubt, go back and read Jesus' teaching. Read His words. Back in chapter 5 where He says, "...Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled." Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. And he goes on and on and he says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Let the words of Jesus press down your doubt. Let the good works of Jesus press down your doubt. Go back to chapters 8 and 9 and read how he met those two demon-possessed guys living in a cemetery because nobody would have anything to do with them. They either ran from them or they tried to chain them up. And Jesus goes to them and he sets them free. Let his words, let his works press down your doubts. John doubted. And so Jesus sent him the answer that would assuage his doubts. He gave him what he needed to believe. Brother Lawrence, in his matter-of-fact fashion that he uses, says simply, when we are in doubt, God will never fail to give light when we have no other plan than to please Him and to act in love for Him. Listen again to Richard Exley. He's writing about that pastor who lost his son to suicide. The pastor says, It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it, yet I realize that I only see in part. I only know in part. He goes on and says, It's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of our great ocean-going vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part, be it a steel plate, out of the hull or the huge rudder and throw it into the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. He says, but when the shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, then that massive steel ship is virtually unsinkable. Taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless, throw it into the sea of Romans 8, 28, and it sinks. He says, still I believe that the eternal shipbuilder has finally, when he has finally finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy will somehow work to our eternal good. John doubted, and Jesus gave him what he needed to believe, his words and his works. And he has recorded them for you For that same reason, when you doubt, go back to the words and works of Jesus. Read Matthew 5 through 9 and let it be kind of a balm for your soul. Jesus says, blessed, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one, some of your Bibles say, doesn't stumble over me. You'll be blessed if you believe in Jesus even when you're suffering and he doesn't come through As expected. You'll be blessed by God if you believe in spite of your suffering and disappointments that He is the one sent by God to deliver us from our sins. Well, the disciples of John leave. They take that message back to John. And Jesus begins to speak to the crowds concerning John. So evidently the disciples came and it was a public kind of questioning of Jesus. Because the crowds were right there and so Jesus now turns to address these crowds about John. He says, "What did you go out into the wilderness to see?" Okay. Evidently the same crowds that are around Jesus were once around John. Okay. So he's asking about when they went out to see John. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? That is, did you see somebody who was just blown back and forth without conviction? What then did you go out to see? Did you see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Um, Jesus says, um, did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? Somebody pliable. We would today say, did you go out to see a spin doctor? Okay. A politician in the worst sense. Somebody whose convictions are based upon focus group and sample polls. And the people would have just smiled and said, no, that's not why we went out. That's not John the Baptist. Listen to the language John the Baptist uses with King Herod, who's eventually going to imprison him for this stuff. It says, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herod was seeing his brother's wife because John had said to the king, it's not lawful for you to have her. He was not a reed, a man without conviction. His message was, repent, okay? You didn't have to wonder what John thought about stuff. That wasn't why they went out. They said, did you go out to see a fashion show like in Herod's palace? Not Definitely not a fashion show. Remember back in chapter 3? This is John. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This was not trendy apparel in John's day. Okay? His food was locusts and wild honey. Instead, Jesus says, they went out to see prophet. What did you got to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is again um, quoting the Old Testament here in Matthew talks about John not only as a prophet, but as one who was prophesied to be a prophet. It was predicted that John would come. Malachi, is what I meant to say, is the one who this prophecy was made by. He says, behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. God is speaking through Malachi. Jesus changes that a little. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face." who will prepare your way before you. And the scholars tell us that Jesus is making that change because he can, he's God, and to let us know that he's God. The you refers to Jesus. Where it once said me referring to God, now the you refers to Jesus as God. He's making it clear his claim to be Yahweh, the one true God, come to earth as a man. So Jesus now says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, okay, man of the year, man of the century, man of all time, John the Baptist. Yet, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I have ears. That makes no sense to me. Um, Let's walk through it slowly because it is a little confusing at first to read. John is Jesus' man of the year, okay? And then some. Jesus said he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. We can assume Jesus is self-excluding from the competition, okay? But John is the greatest. In part, this is due to John's character and faith, who he was. He was a radically faithful man. It's hard to imagine anybody more radically faithful. But this title of the greatest has to do with a life lived faithfully at a certain juncture of time. The forerunner of the Messiah. It was the high point of God's prediction that the Messiah would come. John is the one who was put in that place of being able to point at Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was faithful in that. Now this is contrary to a church called the Unification Church. They're pejoratively called the Moonies because they follow Reverend Sung Young Moon. He, He taught that John was not the greatest, that John was a failure. That's why Jesus had to be crucified. John didn't do his job. And so that's why Reverend Moon had to come as a successful Messiah. Now, you should take that teaching and file it in the category of utter nonsense. There's not a shred of what Scripture teaches true in that. Jesus says John's the greatest, not a failure. He's the greatest to come. But then, he says one of the more puzzling things, he says, if you're in the kingdom, let's say just barely, the last one in line in the kingdom, then you are greater than John the Baptist. How, how can that be? Better wardrobe? I mean, what, what, how are you greater? How are you, as a believer in Jesus, greater than John the Baptist? And I don't think we're going to find very many amongst us who are more radically faithful. But I think it has to do with a, a couple of things. One is, he's comparing the difference between some someone and all men born once versus men and women born twice. Born, in Jesus' language, once and born again. And as such, particularly... I think he's talking about our ability to point to Jesus. That we sit in a place that's greater than John. The least of us who've been personally rescued by Christ, placed in the kingdom, we are better at pointing at Jesus than John was. We can do it in a greater way. We have the whole story in front of us. You have it on your phone. You've got the Bible right there. It tells the whole story of Jesus on your phone. You've got the Spirit of God living in you that emboldens you and gives you words. Something extraordinary is happening here. There's a tipping point in our story. Things are changing. The prophets and law prophesied until John. There's a tipping point. Something new has come that makes what you and I experience and the way we can point to Jesus greater even than John. And it's the coming of the kingdom of God in the great King Jesus. It happens in amazing ways. There's a guy, a missionary who's, whose works I've read for a number of years, his name is Jim Peterson. He was a missionary in South America and uh, he had a friend named Mario. Mario uh, and Jim studied the Bible together for four years before Mario finally became a Christian. The Bible studies reflected the fact that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who'd read all the leading Western philosophers. So a couple years after his conversion to become a Christian, Jim and Mario are sitting around reminiscing, and Mario says, do you remember what it really was that made me decide to become a Christian? Jim's thinking, all those Bible studies and all that philosophy. Let's know what Mario says. He says, remember the first time I stopped by your house... We were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, and your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? And when I realized the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. Now, Jim remembered that occasion. And he remembered that his kids behaved badly. (laughs) And he was frustrated because he had to discipline them in front of Mario. This is what Peterson says as he writes about that. He says, we tend to see the weaknesses and incongruities of our lives and our reaction is to recoil at the thought of letting outsiders close enough to see us as we really are. But he says, even if our assessment is accurate, it's my observation that any Christian who sincerely seeking to walk with God in spite of all his or her flaws is reflecting something of Christ. There is a greater way in which you and I can point to Christ even in our weaknesses. What an honor, Jesus is saying, to be able to point to Christ in this greater way. So John is the greatest, but things are changing there's a kind of tipping point happening, something new and wonderful that makes the least person born again into the kingdom greater than the greatest man ever born. And that something is the coming of the king, King Jesus. And there's great opposition to that kingdom happening. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violence, take it by force. I think it's just referring to increasing persecution against the ways of Jesus. That's why John's in prison. It's going to cost John his life. John, the one Jesus then says, who is Elijah, who is to come. Um, Elijah was predicted, again, back in the Old Testament by Malachi, that he would come Again, uh, it says, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He says, Elijah will come. It's not that John the Baptist at this juncture is necessarily Elijah reincarnated or resurrected or something, but as Luke says, he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and fulfills this prophecy. It's another way of Jesus saying, John is the next to last man. He's the one who comes before the Messiah. He points to him. He is, if you want to learn a big word, the penultimate man, okay? The one before the ultimate. Who's the ultimate? That's the question this chapter's answering. The the chapter's really not about John. It's about who John is pointing to. It's about who John is asking about. John is the penultimate one, the next to last. Jesus is the ultimate one, um, the last man the one who was to come. What are you going to do with that question? Who's the ultimate one? Do you believe it's Jesus? Do you believe that He came? Jesus is about to tell you it's the most important question you could possibly answer. Don't get it wrong. Watch what Jesus says next in verse 16. What shall I compare this generation? The folks who have seen he and John. It's like little children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. So this generation is like children who are invited to play and dance, and they won't. He applies it. He says, John, John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, a reference to Jesus. And they say, um, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um, this This is the most privileged of generations. They had the greatest man ever born. Preaching, teaching, baptizing in their midst. They had the Messiah preaching teaching and baptizing in their midst. He says they're like little children who refuse in spite of all that to join in the game. They say John is demonic and Jesus is a drunk. Can you imagine? But it does raise the question, what have you said in response to these two men? When John says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Do you take it to heart as though it comes from the greatest man ever born? And do you repent? When Jesus says, for instance, in John chapter 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. When Jesus says that, do you come in through Him and believe in Him and follow Him with all your heart, all your days? Do you embrace Him as the Savior and follow Him as Lord? This generation, this privileged generation who had John the Baptist and Jesus in their towns did not. They rejected them. They sat out the mournful song and they sat out the dance as well. What about you? Jesus is making clear, in no uncertain terms, how incredibly devastating the choice to reject him is. In verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Cities of Israel where Jesus had ministered. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities where Jesus did not minister, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he says, and you, Capernaum. It's the hometown of some of the disciples where Jesus had taught and ministered. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, the abode of the dead. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Jesus is denouncing these cities that had seen and heard it all. Capernaum. Peter, Andrew, James, and John's their hometown. Okay. Um, Jesus uh, in that city uh, is where he um, healed the centurion's s- servants. Um, it's where uh, demons had been cast out. Um, mother-in-laws healed amazing stuff going on in Capernaum. And Jesus says, look, if pagan cities had seen this stuff, they would have repented, and yet you did not. In the Old Testament, if there was a city with a reputation, it was Sodom. Sodom became a byword for being sinful and depraved, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were renowned for parading their sin as though it was virtue. Sexual deviancy off the charts, total neglect of the poor and those in need. And yet, Jesus says, if Sodom had seen what Capernaum had seen, it would have not been destroyed in judgment. Capernaum, even though it's the hometown of more of the disciples than any other town, had seen numerous miracles, it's headed towards Hades. Here, contrasted with heaven, it's headed towards hell, he's saying. He says it's better on judgment day for Sodom than it is for Capernaum. You know, it's a very, very, very dangerous thing, Jesus says, to have great spiritual privilege and reject it. With great privilege comes great responsibility, or perhaps we should say great accountability. And if you think about it, if you live in Wake Forest, you've got lots of privilege. I mean, I think there's a church on every corner in Wake Forest. I mean, last I heard, there are over 60 churches in Wake Forest, 60. We got a Christian bookstore downtown. We got a seminary on town where the, in town where the guys who write the books they're selling in the bookstore work. Okay. You could go ask them questions. They know all the answers. Probably, if you live in town, there's probably a seminary student in your neighborhood or where you work. You know, one of those guys who reads Greek and speaks Hebrew, and they can answer, they can answer the questions you're not asking. Okay? That's the kind of spiritual privilege we live in. If you live in Wake Forest, and you have access to all this spiritual privilege, all this information about Jesus, and you don't repent of your sin and trust in Jesus in a way that changes you, I wonder if Jesus could and will use this language that he's using against Capernaum, against you. And he says to you who've rejected him, it's going to be better for the people of Sodom on Judgment Day than it's going to be for you. If I live in Wake Forest with all this privileged access to teaching about Jesus, what does that mean for me on the Day of Judgment? What does that mean for me? Jesus is warning you. And a warning is a hope that you heed it and that you'll repent like these cities didn't and believe in Jesus. Trust Him to be your Savior. Follow Him as your Lord all of your days so that you'll be rescued from the fate that waits for these cities lest they repent. If you are in the kingdom, Jesus says you occupy a place of incredible privilege. You can point to Jesus in amazing ways that no one born only once, no one in the old regime even could ever do. You can do it by the gifts of the Spirit. You can do it. Daniel Meyer tells the story of an elderly woman who heard a sermon in which she felt God encouraging her to look for ways in which she could use her particular gifts and situation to minister to the needs of others. She thought about her gifts, she realized she'd been told by others she had the gift of hospitality, but she lived alone in a small apartment near a large university that had afterno- and she had afternoons free. So she pondered the needs around her and the people who tugged at her heartstrings, and to her mind, came the students nearby who were so far away from home. And it was then that she had this this beautiful, strange idea. She got a stack of 3 by 5 cards, wrote on each one the following words, Are you homesick? Come to my house at 4 p.m. for tea. She included a phone number and address and then posted these cards all over campus. After a slow start, homesick students began trickling into her house each week for tea. And when she died 10 years later, there were 80 honorary pallbearers at her funeral. Each one of them had been a student who, once upon a time, found a cup of hot tea, a sense of home, and the gospel of Jesus in the hospitable heart of this faithful servant. Now, there's a ministry down at NC State that we connect with uh, that ministers to international students, does exactly the same thing. The leaders of the nations have come here to study. How might they be changed if you opened up your home to an international student and welcomed them in for tea and shared with them by your gift of hospitality, the love of Christ? Our privilege, our responsibility, is to point people to Jesus. But if you're not in the kingdom if you're on the outside and you know it if you've only been born once and not been born in Jesus language born again by faith in him then Jesus is himself by way of these warnings calling you to repent of your unbelief and believe in him today would you join me in prayer Father I want to pray for those sitting in this room and even though they're here just like the crowds were standing before Jesus they know that in their hearts they're on the outside. That they haven't bought in yet. They haven't said yes to you. They haven't repented of their sin. I pray that right now you'd grant them the faith to turn and believe. Hear their prayers as they quietly call out to you. And Lord, for those of us who stand in the kingdom even if we think we're the last, least, help us point the way well this week. Friends and neighbors, co-workers you're in this place of privilege that they might be spared this horrible judgment you warned them of and we ask for these mercies in your great name jesus amen